Hello, and welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Javini. I'm the lead pastor at Asbury, and thank you for joining us. And we hope this episode will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, and I do hope it'll entertain you a little bit as we go. Um, last week I gave an introduction to Galatians, and you're still reading Galatians. Uh, you, you just sort of started it. You'll finish it up here in a day or two, uh, I believe, before you begin Ephesians. Uh, let me just double check that I'm right about that. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna start Ephesians uh, later this week, but you're still in Galatians. And since I'm preaching on Isaiah, which you're also reading, um, I want to talk a bit more about Galatians. <clears throat> it's it's you know on the one hand it's a really rich book, but I, I also think there are things in Galatians that Paul is dealing with that, that I identify with very much as a pastor in some ways, and, and that I think speak a lot to um, some of the the problems that we have in the modern church and I suppose in the United Methodist Church specifically. So I'm going to go in and really I'm just going to focus for today on Galatians 2 and 3 because you you I think you'll be still in chapter 3 maybe when I'm, when this podcast releases but if not you will have just finished it so it'll be a little fresh in your mind. So um Remember, the background to this is that uh, the churches in Galatia, which is a region of, of central Turkey, so there's several churches he's writing to, they have um, begun to believe and to teach that you must be circumcised in order to be saved. And we can infer from what, everything else that Paul says that that's actually just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, that that really what they're teaching is that to be saved, you have to uh, follow the entirety of the Old Testament law. So in a way, they've kind of actually reverted back to pre-Christ Judaism. And I say pre-Christ Judaism because Paul actually would, would not have considered what they were doing to be anything other than Judaism. Okay, Paul always thought of himself as a Jew, as a very faithful Jew. Uh, and so did Peter and James and John. And, and what they understood themselves to be doing was uh, teaching the Jewish people how to be faithful Jews under the new covenant. They wouldn't have called themselves Christians yet. Um, and that's, that's an important point. So what the Gentiles, I mean, sorry, what the Galatians have done is they've like reverted to this sort of pre-Christ Judaism and all these, and, and the way that happened most likely is that Jewish Christians in Galatia began to teach the Gentile Christians in Galatia that the law was, was important and had to be followed, and they just sort of all bought into it. And so in chapter 2 of Galatians, Paul is talking about, uh, well, he's he's kind of, setting the background for what he's about to do. Okay, He's going to get to uh, theological explanations for why the, they don't have to worry about the law in a minute. But for now, he's going to remind them of something really important, which is that um, this particular issue has already been settled by the leadership of the church. So in chapter 2, he talks about how he went to Jerusalem. Uh, right. So in chapter 2, verse 1, then after an interval of 14 years, so he's been away from Jerusalem for 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. 
It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that somehow I might be running or had run in vain. So he's already, you know, this is, of course, in the past when he's writing it, but he had already been running, encountering opposition to A, the simple fact that he was preaching to Gentiles, which some people took issue with because the Jewish people are still struggling to reconcile the idea that uh, their faith is now open to all and God's salvation is now open to all. But he, he has been specifically preaching to Gentiles a gospel of salvation by faith, uh, the gospel we would know today. Um, and he's been teaching them that they don't have to be circumcised, that they don't have to follow the entirety of the Old Testament law. And we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, and this, of course, is something that um, the Apostle Peter has already had a glimpse of. We, we read that in the book of Acts where he has his big vision with all the animals being lowered down on the sheet out of heaven and God tells him to eat and, he's, and, and he interprets this as not only is all food clean, but all people are clean. There are no unclean peoples anymore. So you can go to the Gentiles and preach. Um, so, so Paul goes to Jerusalem and before he tries to like preach to the entire church in Jerusalem, he first goes privately to the leaders. Right? He, he interprets this as like the best way to handle it because he's worried if he just goes and starts doing this publicly, he's actually going to do more harm to his ministry. So in verse 3, But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Yet it was a concern because of the false brothers secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy on our freedom, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to enslave us. But we did not yield in subjection to them, even for an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of considerable repute, what they were makes no difference to me, but God shows no favoritism. Well, those who were of repute contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who was at work for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised, was at work for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Um, so he's saying he went to the Jerusalem and, and he encounters opposition because there were, um, once people outside of Jerusalem found out what Paul was up to, they sent their representatives to Jerusalem as well, trying to convince the leadership in Jerusalem uh, that they were right and Paul was wrong. And at the end of the day, Paul's argument is, look, Peter has been, has been called by God to be in charge of evangelizing the Jewish people. I have been called by God to be in charge of evangelizing the Gentiles, but we both have the same gospel. And eventually he gets support from uh, uh, James, Cephas, by the way, is Peter. Cephas is just the the, um, the Greek word for Peter. Uh, so Peter, James, and John, who are commonly called in the church the three pillars. Okay, they are they are the heads of the church. They are the people who have the most respect among the Christian church. Uh, they are they are in charge. Um, they essentially agree with Paul, right? They give him the right hand of fellowship. They say, you know what? Paul's right. Paul's right. So they, they send him to the Gentiles. They have, 
Paul has the blessing of the three most respected men in the Christian world of his day. Right, the the sort of these 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 were the men who were Jesus's inner circle among the disciples. Um, and and so everyone thinks extremely highly of them. Everyone trusts them when they when they speak about theology and practice. They these guys are the ones to listen to. Um, they tell Paul, "Okay, you go. You you have the responsibility for evangelizing the Gentiles." And you don't have to get them circumcised. The only thing you have to do is make sure that they remember the poor, right? Make sure that they actually don't forget the poor. Very interesting. So Paul reminds the Galatians in this chapter that, hey, this issue that you're having, this problem, it's already been solved at, at, by the church leadership, by the people you are appealing to, right? Because if they're coming at this from the angle of we've got to be Jewish, well, Peter and James and John are the most Jewish of the Christians. They are the ones responsible for evangelizing the Jewish community. They are the leadership of the church in Jerusalem. They are faithful, devout Jews themselves. And they've said already, they've settled this issue, that that we don't have to have the Gentiles circumcised, that this is not part of the covenant moving forward. So Paul's saying, look, you... You're rehashing this debate. It's already been settled. Now, here's what's interesting. This tells us from the very earliest days of Christianity that we have had disputes over doctrine and theology and practice, which are inseparable parts of the whole. Um, and, And the church leadership has always been given the responsibility of settling those disputes. Now, we tend to be dismissive of these arguments over doctrine and theology, because they can seem like petty academic squabbles, or, or they can seem irrelevant. We wonder, um, we wonder why they matter. Uh, but this is a good example of why they matter, because they shape how we believe. What we believe shapes how we live, and how we live is vital. In this case, you have a belief that, that literally shapes how people are living, and they're trying to follow a law they don't have to follow. And it's a hard law to follow, and it creates a, a barrier to faith. What we believe shapes how we live. This is one reason I've tried to get as many people as possible reading the entire Bible this year because most people just do not read the Bible enough and they don't know what's in there. So the Jerusalem Council tells Paul that Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. And they pretty clearly give Paul the the full responsibility for leading the evangelization of the Gentiles. One thing we can learn from Paul, not just in Galatians, but throughout his letters, is that there are differences that don't make a difference, and there are differences that do. Paul is going to routinely teach that the differences between Jews and Gentiles are unimportant. He's going to teach that all food is clean to eat, even if it was offered to idols. He's going to teach, um, by the way, when it comes to like gender roles, he's going to have kind of different teachings depending on who he writes to. You're going to see him handle that differently in different letters. And a lot of that is based purely on the culture of the place he's writing to, right? There's there's some places where uh, he puts women in charge. The Philippian church, there's a good chance it was actually led by a woman when Paul left. Uh, he sends a female apostle to the city of Rome, to the church in Rome. So Paul put women in positions of, of leadership. Paul instructs in some places uh, that women be taught, right? There's the famous verse where Paul says that 
women should learn with all submission and humility, and people think he's trying to put women down, but actually, you know, in the context of his day, it's pretty radical that he's saying women should learn. Um, that was not done in Greco-Roman culture. Women were not taught. Women were not even considered to be fully human by the Greeks and Romans. So Paul is saying that, yeah, women should learn. That's radical. Um, and I would suspect that actually he would have said men should learn in all submission and humility as well. So he's actually treating them as equals. And then, of course, there's others where he says, you know, they really need to be silent in church. Um, and, and so he handles it a bit differently depending on who he's writing to and what issues they have. But then there are differences that do make a difference, right? He always maintains, for instance, that the sexual ethics of the Old Testament are still in effect, that actually you don't get to adopt the cultural sexual practices of wherever you live. You have to do what the Bible says on this front. He's insistent on that all throughout the New Testament. He insists on the biblical uh, and in Old Testament definitions of, of how marriage is supposed to work, on how uh, on how you're supposed to treat the poor and, and the ethics of wealth from the Old Testament, Paul insists on those uh, and, and on ideas of living a holy life and a disciplined life. So there are, in Paul, there are differences that make a difference and there are differences that don't make a difference. And, and this, of course, matters to us today, particularly in the United Methodist Church as we're looking at a, a, a split within the denomination. There are you know, one, one thing that people have always loved about United Methodism is that we have had a sort of big, big tent idea and we've had room for disagreement and they're wondering now why why are we splitting all of a sudden and, and it goes back to there are differences that make a difference and there are differences that don't. Um, we now have differences that make a difference and we have to make a decision about them. That doesn't make it easy, uh, but it is it is necessary. For a long time, we, we have many differences that just don't make a difference. We can disagree over all sorts of things, but there are some differences that that cross a line, that make a difference, and we have to respond. Uh, Paul certainly saw that. He was very clear that there were differences that, that don't make a difference in the people's lives, right? Um, we have all kinds of differences that don't make a difference in terms of the practice of the church. Um a good one actually might be um, how we respond to abortion. Now, I believe that Scripture calls us to be pro-life. Uh, there's not one particular verse that does it, but I think on the whole, the Bible calls us to be respectful of all human life because all human life is sacred. But we can disagree in two ways. So one is we can disagree on what the actual best approach that is. I don't know that. Uh, I'm not actually convinced at all that, that banning abortion is going to help on that front. And there are many reasons why. I think there are better things we could do to help people uh, who are finding themselves saddled with an unplanned pregnancy and who need help. And there's probably better things we can do to reduce the rate of abortion than banning it. Um, but we might also disagree on uh, exactly when life begins. Now, I'm fairly convinced of of the idea that life begins at conception? You may not be. Now, this is an important topic, right? It's a hot-button issue. It, it, it has uh, profound implications for uh, public policy, and, and, of course, it has life-changing implications for many people across the world. 
or millions of people in our own country. But this is an issue that we as Christians can faithfully disagree on and still uh, be together in fellowship and faith. Uh, I, obviously that doesn't always happen, but, that, but that doesn't ha- this is not the sort of thing that has to separate us or has to divide us. Because all Christians agree that human life is sacred. We agree in the sanctity of life. The disagreement lies over when does life begin. And, and that's something that we can actually have faithful conversations over uh, and have disagreements over. And it's a difficult disagreement. It's a deep disagreement. Um, but nonetheless, we can disagree faithfully and still be in fellowship with each other. Human sexuality is probably a difference that we can't, dis- in many ways, we can't disagree on and remain in, in comfortable fellowship with each other. That's the hard part. Um, because in this case, there are actually very clear instructions in the Bible on, on how we can safely and effectively live out our, our sexuality as human beings. That's a Topic for a whole different podcast, by the way. I'm not going to go into detail here, uh, although I, I do think at some point in the next year uh, I'm going to need to do some teaching on that topic. And, and I'm not just talking, to be clear, I'm not just talking about uh, same-sex marriage and things like that. There, there's all sorts of deep, rich theology regarding human sexuality that uh, the church has not done a good job of teaching, and it deals not only with um, same-sex marriage, but with heterosexual marriage, with premarital sex, and all the things that the church has taught about human sexuality over the years, and why. Um, and, and it's not the sort of thing that can be explained quickly if you haven't been immersed in it for your whole life, and the church really has not done a good job of that. But there are differences that make a difference, and differences that don't. And sometimes the differences that don't make a difference are big differences. They're hot-button issues. They are hotly debated, but we can still be in fellowship over them. And sometimes we might not want to be in fellowship if we have that difference, but we can still do it. We can still make it work. We can we can faithfully disagree on something as long as we respect that each of us are, are coming at this with good intentions. And then there are, of course, the differences that do make a difference and that, that make it difficult, actually, to stay unified as a church. And Paul exemplifies that throughout his letters. We're going to move ahead now to chapter 3. Now, up until now in the letter, Paul has been using um, experience. Okay, He's been talking about what's already happened, what, what the church has already decided on, what the leadership of the church has been doing, and that's how he's been supporting his argument that the Galatians do not need to go around circumcising everybody. Now he's going to get into some theology, and he starts off uh, with one of my favorite parts of Galatians, Galatians 3.1. You foolish Galatians! <laughs> I love it. I love, he's just so angry with them, right? You fools. Who has bewitched you? Paul can't believe that they've been duped. He can't believe, he asks how they can believe that the law is needed when they receive the Holy Spirit by faith alone, right? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, Think back to when you all became Christians, to when you were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Were you following the law? No, you weren't. That was faith alone. 
And it's interesting because he doesn't accuse them of sinning. He accuses them of being stupid. One of the only times in the Bible he's just going to accuse people of being stupid. The mistake the Galatians made was not that they had been deceived. It's that they didn't think. They abandoned logical reasoning. So yes, they were led astray, but they allowed themselves to be led astray by not thinking through their theology themselves. That's the crux of chapter 3. Now, I feel this pain particularly as a pastor in the modern church. Most Christians today have no idea what we believe and why. And again, this is, this is one reason I wanted you all to read the entire Bible. It's why next year in 2023, I'm, I'm going to be ramping up some of our discipleship and some of our uh, catechesis, which is a fancy word for teaching people what we believe. Because it is important to me that Christians understand the faith of the church. Our, our faith is ancient. Much of what we believe can be traced back to churches that were around 2,000 years ago. Our faith is ancient, and, and it's well thought out, and um, people will try and contextualize it and modernize it, and you can't. It can't be done. The reality is the modern, we need to be conforming our view of the modern world to Scripture and not conforming Scripture to the modern world. We have a faith uh, a theology, a belief about who Jesus is and what he does and how we're supposed to respond that has not only been set out in the Bible, but for 2,000 years, billions of Christians have thought about this and preached about this and taught about this and prayed about this and written about this. We have a rich, rich heritage that explains not only what we believe, how we're supposed to live, but also talks about why and why that matters. All the questions, every question that you have about the Bible and about the faith is a question that someone else has thought about before. It's a question someone else has asked before. And it's a question that people have been answering for 2,000 years. The answers are out there. But we haven't been teaching them to people. It's a great loss to us. But it's not just that the church leadership hasn't been teaching about them. It's that the people in churches haven't actually been thinking about them or pursuing those answers. Especially not in recent decades when people have been content to, to pretty much just go to church on Sundays and go home. And, that was, and that's their full commitment to the faith. But that's not enough. Because when that happens, you can be led astray just like the Galatians were. You can be taught a false gospel. This is the importance as Christians of understanding in depth the theology and doctrine of the church so that you actually have the knowledge to spot a false gospel when it's presented to you, to remain faithful to the truth. Remember, what you believe shapes how you live. And how we live matters. We are called to be a light to the nations. We can't do that if we're not actually living in the way that God wants us to live. This is why Galatians is so relevant to us today, because so much of what Paul says to the churches in Galatia applies directly to the modern church, and 
of course, specifically to the United Methodist Church, of which I am part. Right? We have just not done a good job of teaching people what we believe and why, and why, and, and where to find those answers in the Bible. And, and human sexuality is a great answer, right? If you were to ask, why does the church teach that marriage is between one man and one woman? And, and why does the church teach that premarital sex is, is not okay? And why does the church have a problem with same-sex marriage? Most Christians really don't have an answer to that question. The best you'll get from most people, including, by the way, most pastors, is, well, the Bible says so. And indeed it does, right? Not just in the Old Testament, but it's in the New Testament too. And, and this is a key point as well, because plenty of people will think, well, that's an Old Testament issue. No, it's not. It's all throughout the New Testament. People will say, Jesus never mentioned it. Yeah, he does, actually. Um, he talks about sexual sin, and he's a first century Jew, so for him, sexual sin would include same-sex relationships. Jesus talks about it. You have to know these things. It's in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament. And that's all well and good, but people will still want to know why. It is no longer enough to say, well, the Bible says so. Because then the response is, well, if I don't like that part of the Bible, I'm just going to reject it. I'll either reject that part of the Bible or I'll reject the whole thing altogether. And that's what many of our churches are doing, by the way. They're rejecting the authority and the truth of the Bible because they they don't like parts of what it says and they don't have the resources to understand why it says the things it does. And that includes our pastors. This is a major part of why there is a, a schism in the United Methodist Church right now. This is the importance of understanding our theology and our doctrine and teaching it and passing it on and wrapping our minds around it. There are good reasons for everything that the Bible says about how we're supposed to live. There is a deep and rich theology of why it matters to God who we marry and who we sleep with. It can't be given in a soundbite. It can't even be given really in the time that I have in this podcast, which is why I, I think I'll have to do some specific teaching on that in the next year. No matter what, I mean, no matter what happens with the church, I'll have to do that, I think, because it's important. It's important you understand whether you agree with it or not, by the way. Some of you are going to disagree with me on this, and that's okay. You need to at least understand what you're disagreeing with. And, and this is just one example, by the way, and I'm picking on it because it's relevant to us right now, but, but there are many other things about uh, the way that the Bible tells us we're supposed to live that we have questions about, and, and most Christians don't have a good answer. But the answers exist. They're out there. People have been asking the same questions for 2,000 years. And yes, that includes all the questions we're asking right now about sexuality and gender. People have been asking those same questions for 2,000 years. These are not new problems. The church has already dealt with them. We just forgot that they dealt with them already, and we've forgotten to read what the church has done about it. This is why Galatians matters to us. It's the same problems in different forms. Now, that's one of the reasons I love 
the book. Because it reminds me that as a pastor, part of my job is to make sure that I am able to explain to you all what we believe and why. So I said before, I'll say again, you're, you're going you're gonna to see in the next year or so, in 2023, no matter what happens with Asbury, no matter what happens with United Methodist Church, I, I feel strongly that I, I need to be taking that time to teach on our doctrine and our theology and what it means and why it matters and, and, and go into some of these, these subjects that are hot-button issues. Um, and, and we in our church have a diversity of opinions on all of those issues, by the way. We're not unified on that by any means. But I feel it's important that I actually spend some time teaching on those and, and teaching why they matter and why it matters that we believe these things. And, and um, Because I don't want people in our church to be led astray by a false gospel. I want you all to be well-taught, well-educated in Christian thought and theology so that you can spot a false gospel when it rears its head. I consider that a, a, a huge part of my calling as a pastor, actually. It's one of my favorite things to do, but, but I think the reason why I love it so much is that God has called me specifically to that aspect of ministry, that teaching part of it. And so this whole thing of reading the Bible in a year is like the preliminary effort to give you the foundation to move forward because you have to be immersed in Scripture before you can start dealing with doctrine and theology, right? You go to the Bible first, and then you start going with, okay, what have, what have Christians been making of all this for the past 2,000 years? And there is a temptation in the modern church to reject 2,000 years of theology and try and do a fresh interpretation of it all. And the problem with that is you are not any smarter, any more well-educated, any more able to access the Holy Spirit than the Christians of days gone by. They have the exact same ability to interpret Scripture and apply it to our lives as we do. And believe it or not, they had the same kinds of problems that we do. Their answers are relevant for us today. It's important to understand what Christians have already said and thought about these topics because many of the questions we have have been settled and nothing new has changed. So to me, this is a major part of the message of Galatians. That A, you've already, you know, you, you've already been taught the gospel. And B, the church has a responsibility to continue teaching the gospel, to continue teaching the theology behind what we do and why and what we believe and why, so that you, the people of God, are always able to discern truth from lies. That, to me, it, I mean, granted, every time I read Galatians, I'll come up with something different, as I, which is true of every book of Scripture. But right here and right now, this is my takeaway from the book of Galatians, that the church has to be steeped in the theology and thought and the doctrine and, uh, that helps us to interpret the gospel so that 
so that we are not led astray by a false gospel. Amen. That's all I have for you this week, folks. I'll be back next week with another podcast episode.